Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Jenny Transformation. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to our new segment, Ask a... I don't want to say it at the same time. Oh, sorry. Were you doing it at the same time? Yes. Okay. Ask a... I can't just... <laughs> you need to one, two, three, me. One, two, three. Ask, Ask a, a manager. manager. <laughs> 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 so... In the previous episode, I referred to a website called askamanager.org. Can't remember what we were talking about. Doesn't matter. No idea. Anyway, (laughs) I referred to this website, askamanager.org, because my friend Claire has often pointed me in the direction of this website when I've had issues with a manager or leadership. And it's basically a blog website where people write in with a query or an issue or a complaint about a manager or leadership and then people can reply anything really. So the person who owns the website and manages it, their name is Alison Green and they reply their advice and then everyone else can reply underneath it. It's like an open Dear Abby. Exactly. What's that? <laughs> How do you know exactly then? Exactly. Wait, what? <laughs> Dear Abby is like an old advice column. And so people would write in and they would start with Dear Abby. Right. And yeah. then they would describe the thing and then Abby would respond. But this is like the open version of that. Yeah, 100%. Okay. And it's been going for years. I see things in there from 2013, 2012. Sometimes the age difference between us is astonishing. (laughs) (laughs) It's been going for ages. And I have used it. It is really, really useful. And there is really good advice on it. What do you mean you have used it? Like when I've had an issue with a manager. Me? No, just any manager. Have you written about me on there? No, I've never written. Can I just say, I don't mean used it as in I've written in, but used it as in I've gone to see if someone else has asked a question about this and then looked at their advice. Because there are hundreds and hundreds of people asking questions on it. Thousands probably. So you can filter on the website, you know, my manager is not letting me have a day off. And probably tens of other people have asked a similar question and there's been advice on what you should do. Okay. It's a really good reference website if you're stuck. essentially there's also a podcast called ask a manager it doesn't run anymore Mm. but they also read out things and advice so check that out as well okay i think there's also resources and a book on there anyway we're not selling this website so (laughs) well we kind of are because we're reading stuff from it and talking a lot about it so (laughs) true but kind of in the same vein as our caution what we found on glassdoor episode we also read out glassdoor reviews go and check that out i'm going to read out some queries and tia's going to tell me what she thinks because Tia was my manager, remember? If you've listened to the Pradeep episode, you'll know. Yes. Mm. <laughs> this is actually an update from a previous post. Okay. It's called, Can This Dysfunctional Organisation Be Saved? And it's Probably from not. December 2019. <laughs> and this is a segment on this website called, Where Are You Now? So they run updates sometimes as to past comments where are those people now and it says back in 2014 i printed a letter from someone who had been hired to help change a terribly dysfunctional organization including a horribly unhappy staff a ceo who wouldn't manage and a hr person who gasped at the thought of a hypothetical firing i said the letter writer couldn't salvage this so the person who owns the website said that they didn't think this person could salvage this issue that was their advice and so here's the Thanks, update. Alice. <laughs> so here's the update I wrote you in 2014 about 
about my new fundraising job at the overwhelmingly broken nonprofit organization. What a terrible name for a nonprofit. (laughs) (laughs) Your advice is I couldn't change things because the leadership had no intention of changing. I was in my optimistic, delusional honeymoon phase when I got your response, and I decided that I would invest my whole being into making it work. I stuck it out for a little over four years, and holy cow, were you right, and was I ever wrong? In oh, bas- that's not where I thought this was going to go. In basically every way. There was nothing I could do to change the intrinsic organisational culture. It was the most puzzling, mind-blowingly confusing and broken place I'd ever worked. The lack of self-awareness from the folks in charge was epic. I learned over time that folks who were smart and capable, self-selected, which left a whole bevy of questionable hires in charge of whole departments. That being said... I had some incredible, valuable experiences at this job. I got to research some pet projects, fly around to different countries. I was thrilled to meet different kinds of people. I made some deep friendships and they helped me stay sane. The two biggest downsides to staying at the broken organisation were A, the hit on my reputation in the community and B, the hit it took on my sanity. The first six months or so at my new job, I kept having mini panic attacks at the slightest mistake, expecting to get yelled at, fired or otherwise humiliated. I had no idea how much dysfunctional organisation could warp my sense of workplace norms. Now, in retrospect, all of the drama and insanity of that job that I got swept up in just seemed silly, sad and for who? Like it was a dream or something. Something. And that's it. They've since left and they now work at somewhere that they like. <laughs> I guess it's touching on a couple of things I'd like to just touch on. Someone can spend four years working for a dysfunctional organisation. Mm. Wow. I mean, at what point do you leave? Can you leave? If someone spends four years at a dysfunctional organisation, seems like a really long time. Yeah, that's either like a really, really optimistic person or their personal circumstances mm-hmm. create a significant enough constraint that means they can't leave, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes people stay in jobs for a really, really long time mm-hmm. because you don't want to let go of one branch before you've got hold of another. If I understood correctly, it sounds like in the first six months, they knew things were pretty fucked up. Yeah, but then what we've talked about before on this podcast is we're very hopeful people and we want change. Who? They're- well, me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> me. You. I. Let's take me. I. And people, guests we've talked to are positive about change. Where is that then a detriment? Because I'm like, I'm one person. I can do this. I can change this entire organization. Maybe I'm the disruptor. Yeah, I'm going to change the way things are. When, in, you know, this person is after four years, seeing that actually they can't do that. I think to be a disruptor, you have to have just the right mixture of arrogance, sense of self-importance determination and entitlement to make that work. And I mean those as like positive characteristics, right? Because what you're describing is that I can fix it. I alone can revolutionize. I am the great disruptor. And like you have to have a certain amount of leveraging the positivity of arrogance and entitlement to believe that you can change a whole institution. Mm. Those are qualities that I think are very positive. And I think they're things that disruptors need. I can do it. I can be the one who just like tweaks this thing and it's there, you know. We know a lot of good people in shitty organizations who stay for a long time. I think change is really uncomfortable. So you can know that something's really shitty right away. When I left the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, I'd only been there for like five months. I knew 
in the first month that shit was really, really bad. And I had that feeling of, it's okay. The grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. I had that kind of attitude. I had that kind of, it is the honeymoon period. Like you think, okay, there's some shitty things that are going on, but you know, we can make this work, baby. Like I had an attitude like that. Even with my comfort with discomfort, it was still very uncomfortable to make the choice to leave because it's change, it's personal and professional disruption. And so I think that there's a lot of reasons why people end up stuck in dynamics, stuck in organizations that they know aren't good for them. And I think in some ways they kind of can replay some interpersonal dynamics that you might have with like an individual. You can replay those dynamics within organizations and with an organization. We've talked about some of the crossovers about problematic relationships that you might have with an individual and the way that looks in relationship to an organization, right? Mm. So I think there's a lot of reasons why that happens that are both inherent to the person and part of the context that they're operating in. It's hard to leave places and it's uncomfortable. And if you have that kind of optimism, you're having to admit that you were a fool. Right? Yeah, there's a deep personal reflection in that. Yeah, yeah like and you, a, a you know, scary one. if I'm four years deep into an organization that I knew six months in was shitty, probably sooner than that, I have to admit that I got either taken for a ride, I was too lazy to get out. I was, you know, you have to admit these hard things about yourself. Mm. You have to admit that you were complicit in the dysfunction. Like you have to admit a lot of things about yourself before you can kind of jump out of that space. I That's think. really deep, the being complicit in a dysfunction because it goes against every moral and value and reason that you work in this sector, right? So then to acknowledge when you're working for a shitty organisation that after a certain amount of time you're complicit in it, that's really deep. And I think, yeah, it would take a huge amount of self-reflection because in a lot of ways you want to make the organisation your enemy and, and that kind of counters how you see yourself. Yeah. And I'm reminded of someone I met some years ago and they were a human resources person in fact who joined an organization I was working for and they would purposefully choose organizations that were a bit shit have interviews with them and see that maybe it was all men interviewing them or something was wrong with the interview and their response would be you need me that's great yeah and I'd never heard that kind of perspective before I guess my question here is would you have given the same advice like Alison said this can't be salvaged you need to leave do you think you would have given the same advice? They're a fundraiser? Yeah. And they were asking this question when they were six months in. They'd already been working there for six months. Yeah. They're a fundraiser. Yeah. 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 You're a fundraiser. You're not in a position to influence. Mm. Unless you're the like vice president of business development or the head of business development, you're not really in it. And judging by the way that all of this went, it doesn't sound like they're really in a position of influence or power. Yeah. So if it doesn't feel good and you can find your way through the financial and social implications of that, then you need to go because yeah. that's not good. One of the things that they were talking about, I guess, in the follow up was the impact to their mental health. Yes. There's not a whole lot that's worth that. And given how much time we spend in work and thinking about work, so it's not just when you're sitting down at your desk or whatever, it's your commute to and from work if you are still a commuter. It's all of the preparation or the thinking. If you're somebody who deals with anxiety in the way that I do, you're thinking about everything all the time. So <laughs> it's not like, okay, it's Friday, it's five o'clock, I'm stopped thinking about things. I'm thinking about things on the weekend and at night. And first thing when I wake up, I'm thinking about it at the gym. I'm thinking about it. You know what I mean? It's not just where your physical 
physical body is or when you're actively working on a particular work-related task. It's all of the things that occupy your mental space and what that pushes out. So if you're worried about the things that are happening at work and the social dynamics at work, that means you don't have space for any of the other stuff that's much more valuable and much more important. The anxiety is pushing away all of the opportunities for enjoying your life. Yeah, so much is lost in that space. Exactly. So I think you should always feel excited by work, either excited about tackling a challenge or excited about a win that's coming down the line. You shouldn't feel the kind of anxiety of work because you're worried somebody's going to come at you. Yeah, she talks about mental health and the reputation also as being a bit of a loss. And for me, I think that would be a key one alongside what I might have lost by not keeping up with the sector. Because as you say, if you're bogged down with this and this is taking over your life and your, your mental health, then your professional development is probably also going backwards. Yeah. And that's a scary space. Do you want to expand on an example that you might be thinking of? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I joined the humanitarian open street map team thinking that I would expand my professional development in the GIS space. What's GIS? Geographical information systems, geography (laughs) information systems, whatever. And the technical AI or artificial intelligence pieces behind that. And I, you know, had already got some quantitative and some qualitative skills down. And for me, that was where the sector was going or monitoring and evaluation field that I worked in. So I wanted to add that string to my bow. And I've often built my career like that only then to find that actually I was building a basic monitoring system and things that I really didn't want to do at least from a professional development perspective and that the space for me to learn wasn't there because people didn't know what they were doing so if they didn't know what they were doing how were they going to teach me what they were doing yeah so you know there wasn't somebody there who was ready to see how it all fitted in and in fact I found myself fighting for what monitoring and evaluation was about rather than being given a space to learn and add to what I already knew that professional pieces is really important and the reputational risk is a really important one there are a lot of people who work in this field and i think it's something like 23 million people work in not-for-profits globally they're fucking ass load of organizations is even the international non-governmental organizations there's still a fucking fuckload of them And to a certain extent, you have like geographic limitations, right? So I can't work for the Finnish development organization, institution arm, whatever. So depending on the type of work that you want to do and where you want to do it at, you will have some limitations or it's a smaller pool of organizations. And reputation does matter. But where I see it go wrong, because we all work for shitty organizations doing shitty stuff, right? So like you can say, oh, I've worked for X organization who's just had some recent scandal where insert scandal here. That doesn't really take the shine off the individual as much because we just think about it as like this is like an institutional dysfunction unless you are literally the person at the center of that thing. It doesn't really shake onto you too much, right? I would say. So I've worked for and alongside people who've worked in a number of organizations who've been wrapped up in a number of scandals. The organizations themselves doesn't take the shine off the person. It just makes me look at that organization somewhat differently. Mm. Now, where it does is when I know an organization will do stupid stuff like in lieu of pay raises, for example, they'll give people overinflated titles. Or they'll give people job titles that actually don't make any sense or don't reflect the skills and competencies and capacities that you would expect for that person in that role. For example, if you have a role 
and somebody just calls you a country director, but you actually don't do any of the stuff that you traditionally would expect a country director to do, like have foundation and strategy of budget management, of large scale team management, a high level of contextual expertise and knowledge. You'd expect somebody who is directing a whole country's program yeah. and portfolio to have a certain number of skills. But if you just put people in roles and give them a title that has no significance, one of the ones that stood out to me once is there was somebody who had been an intern for an organization. They'd interned for two months and then was a country director. Wow, that's wild. Do so you saying that that damages their reputation? It does. Because I guess you're looking at someone's CV and you're seeing where they progress and that matters, doesn't it? Well, it calls into question everything that comes after that point. Because do I believe that somebody could make a mid-career shift and go from interning to being a country director? Yes, because it depends on all the stuff that you did before that. So people who do mid-career jumps. So I've been working in a field for 15 years. I'm quite senior in this field, but actually now I want to work in another field. I might spend a little bit of time getting my feet wet and reorienting myself into a new sector or a new field. And then it might make more sense based on my experience to then be more senior because now I'm just moving horizontally. Yeah, and as you say, you've got all that skills and knowledge that you're bringing from previous, regardless if it's not thematically focused there's still a lot of knowledge and skills to be shared exactly a country director is a really good example if you've got human resource management financial management strategy you know the context you can make a jump from one sector into another in that sort of role but if you go from like no professional work experience to interning to a country director everything that comes after that point you have to call into question you can if you've got life experience yeah and in some ways you should there's some practical skills that you should know and i think age you in that space but to go from spending two months as an intern to going to managing a country or directing a country's portfolio there's just really practical skills that you have to have and if you don't have those skills then everything that happens after that point like your reputation yeah exactly if it were me and they said oh we're going to offer you a country director role i'd either say okay i need to make sure that i know everything that a country director would know in a comparable position or i'd say actually instead of calling me a country director, can we have a different title that better reflects the things I'm going to be doing? Like you want your role to reflect the things you're actually doing so that when people look at it on your CV or on your resume, it's clear what it means. Otherwise, you can't ever move to another organization without somebody being like, hang on. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends if there's the existence of a program manager or something else. But I've often found that the country director role can often be a bit of a status signifier or like this is a representative of the organization and therefore to be a representative of the organization they need to have a certain title you know especially if they're connecting with other organizations or the partners or whatever it's like here's our country director who runs the office and I think there's a kind of you know oh we'll connect with the country director versus oh let's connect with the intern or let's connect with the program officer or but they're effectively the same person based on their skills um, and experience um, yeah 100 percent. yeah i guess i'm just saying in terms of how i've sometimes seen that leap up or necessary as kind of a here's our representative in country Mm. and almost like a external echo of like yes we've got somebody significant in country who's representing us rather than the reality of the skills and knowledge that they have even in that position it's not that great right because if your person of significance is a 20 some year old person who's not had any other experience and that's your significant representative in country in a lot of contexts we work in age gender experience 
are hugely significant. So if you throw somebody in the mix who hasn't ever had a significant role, so they've just gone from school, college or university, interning for a couple of months to now this position, it's almost worse because that's like your delegate. So it's not good for that person in terms of the roles that they're going to. And it's not great. I'm thinking this was in a context that was very patriarchal and hierarchical. And how does this person become your representative effectively so it doesn't look that great from an organizational perspective? I've seen that quite a lot as a thing that some organizations do. So the reputation bit I think is hard just going back to this person what they wrote the thing that I have always been concerned about is leaving a role so when I left the humanitarian open street map team I was like I just need to cut the cord because I can explain a six-month gap Mm. and so I didn't put them on my resume for a really long time because I didn't want the reference yeah yeah. (laughs) really and I still don't I wouldn't put them as a reference for anything Because I don't think that they can speak to my work in any way that's like coherent. Um, It's almost like if you don't trust the organization, their recommendation doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) My company's leadership program for women excludes men. This was in June 2021. Honda Reader writes, The large company I work for has embraced inclusion, equity and diversity. That's a good thing in my books. But one of the campaign's company-wide programs helps women grow in leadership and explicitly excludes men. I'm a male. The program offers guests... Oh, duh. the program offers guest speakers panel discussions learning modules to help women improve leadership skills and deal with blockers to career growth i'm interested in all those things this doesn't seem fair at all i'd like to believe we can find ways to address systemic issues in the workplace without disadvantaging others so acutely to be clear i support the goals of inclusion equity and diversity and have supported many programs to promote these goals but this seems to cross the line i'm concerned about three points i'm missing out on great professional development. Two, people who take part in the program may receive greater consideration for raises and promotions. Three, I feel personally excluded, like the company is sending a message that my career doesn't matter. Related, I'm concerned it's setting the culture of the organisation. Any decisions by my immediate managers could take into account these values as implied by this program. How would you deal with this situation? This is bullshit. <laughs> this. You know what? Eat my cooter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rachel. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. This is the equality and equity discussion, right? This man is saying, I believe in equity. I believe in equity. No, what you're talking about is equality. I want the same as everybody else. It completely negates the fact that women have primarily been systematically disadvantaged and left out of leadership opportunities, out of growth opportunities historically and is trying to create balance, right? It's not about everybody gets the same thing. It's about people who haven't had as much get more because they need more, right? 100%. And it kind of speaks a little bit to the scarcity thing again, right? Like they're taking away these professional development career opportunities and therefore there is none for me. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Oh, isn't it fucking sad? Like enjoy your like 35 minutes of disenfranchisement. Like fuck (laughs) off. Shove that up your fucking ass. (laughs) I can't. Yeah. I can't be in that space. Go ask any woman in your life 
how they would handle the situation and then you just do what they say right because they're not going to be like yeah completely dismantled the whole thing they're going to be like okay but what other opportunities exist you know mass online free courses go on to Coursera and edX and like get your own you know what I mean like that's what they're going to say you've got to find out your own avenues to grow yourself yeah 100% and it's just lean in (laughs) (laughs) it kind of like mind boggled me to see this written down like this I mean I guess I know about it from other mutterings that men feel like this is an exclusionary point you start crying again I'm gonna have to go get you some cheese to go with that wine (laughs) (laughs) yeah I feel like that's a good one but to see it so explicitly written out and to feel within this wording and how it's written that they feel that they have really solid points here and they really feel that like the downside to being in this broken organization and it's that's their entitlement talking yeah hugely anyway wild one i was just really surprised to see it written there and i did glance at some people's comments and they're very much saying what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) because anything else is just because i imagine that the average readership of a blog like this is probably going to be women yeah right so this is not a safe home for your ideas yeah fella (laughs) (laughs) hence i guess why they're often anonymous last one i'm gonna have to summarize this one a little bit just to kind of give a gist and, and then ask you what you think so the title is my employee refuses to use her co-workers correct pronouns i'm a new manager at a medium-sized public library one of my employees came out as non-binary last summer and has started using a new name alex and they them pronouns their new name is pretty easy for staff to pick up but the pronouns have been challenging for all of us to try for varying degrees i have another employee jane who has become adamant that because she is christian and her religion says there are only two genders it is discriminatory for us to ask her to use they them pronouns when referring to alex library management has firmly taken the position that correct pronoun use is of vital importance to customer service and inclusive workplace but it took us a while to get there and get communications around it what would you do about jane quiet fire <laughs> Quiet fire. Yeah. Okay. Expand, please. Okay. Well, so this is actually kind of topical because there was a. When was this written? 2021. Okay. So there was an article fairly recently about a teacher who refused to use the preferred pronouns of a student, and that teacher was then fired. Okay. That teacher sued the school and won wow. on the grounds that the dismissal was unwarranted because there wasn't a policy but also on the grounds that it was a violation of their like religious beliefs or whatever. Wow. Okay. So to use someone's preferred pronouns. But how much is that just not reflective of someone's name or how they want to be represented? Does that yeah, mean no, it's you a stupid just argument. call them like whatever you want? No, it's a stupid argument. As an American, we've got just some fucking bizarre shit that at any point in time you can be like, this is against my religious beliefs. This is why we have fucking polio back in America because people are like vaccinations against polio or against my religious beliefs. We just can say whatever we want is against our religious beliefs and it's fine. Well, so religious beliefs trump everything else? Yes, effectively. Because in this context, it's really problematic because they're saying this is against my religious beliefs <laughs> to refer to somebody in a way that they feel comfortable. So it's not like you can fire them, right? Because then they would consider that discrimination based on their religious beliefs, right? right so you right. can't fire Jane. You can quietly fire Jane. Okay. <laughs> but also like for Alex, like what kind of work environment is that? Yeah, I think you just keep them on separate shifts, right? It's a library. Put them on <laughs> different shifts i mean you're not gonna get rid of alex because alex sounds fucking dope you need to get rid of jane but you can't because you open yourself 
to liability from a kind of legal perspective, potentially. You just need to put them on different shifts. The more you create an environment that's open and inclusive, the more marginalized Jane will feel. Mm, right. I think assigning shelves in the group fridge and giving her the door and that's where Jane's got to put their food is, you know, <laughs> or like taking their lunch and replacing it with shit. I, I think there's probably space for like some light lowercase H harassment and hazing. Um, just, I mean, I'm not saying make it a toxic work environment, but mm. not a healthy work environment. And mm. then they'll just leave eventually. I found this one just, yeah, fascinating from that. If you're a manager or a leader, you're really stuck. Yeah. And I suppose, as you say, more commonly in America, the religion level. I understand the situation of like, it's hard to get used to using people's pronouns when they yeah, change. Yeah, acknowledge that. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. I totally get that. I've been making a very conscious effort over the last couple of years to be more gender neutral in my language and to not make assumptions about people just because there have been times when I haven't been right. Mm. <laughs> so just out of that and out of respect for people and out of solidarity for the trans community, I've been trying to really go on a thoughtful journey and i appreciate that it's hard it's really hard especially if you've known somebody as a particular name and they're using a different name right yeah but like it's incredibly incredibly rude to dead name someone which is to use a name that they no longer use or to use the pronouns that somebody doesn't use it's really really fucking rude so jane just sounds like a piece of shit it's one thing to just be like i'm learning too and i'm trying but just decide that you're not going to do it on the grounds of your religious beliefs you can believe that there are only two genders but i'm pretty sure that a big part of the bible is like love your neighbor mm -hmm. as yourself so just not being a complete piece of shit they them is it's easy yeah and, you know, <laughs> like, and also you know whatever your religion says and there are so many religions around the world have different readings and beliefs whatever yeah that's your choice but that's not alex's choice and that's not the workplace's choice and yeah. you know when you decide to step out of your own house and beliefs into another workplace or into a store or into a cafe or a coffee shop you're entering into a space where you're going to intersect with multiple beliefs and identities yeah. that has to be a sort of precursor except to stemming out into the world just quiet fire quiet fire <laughs> slowly marginalize that person adopt a technique which i think is good taken from the amish shunning shunning yeah you just don't speak to the person <laughs> nobody speaks to that person they're like a black hole and because human beings are social creatures i think actually it's been classified as a form of torture wow if you just pretend that person doesn't exist for social creatures for social human beings it's like fucking torture it's the worst so eventually they'll just go away. It's like being in solitary confinement. Yikes. I'm not saying do that, but you could do that. Well, you might say <laughs> it after I read the next paragraph. So okay. there was an incident a few months ago when Jane cornered Alex and repeatedly demanded from them what people of faith are supposed to do because it's against her religion. During this conversation, Jane repeatedly misgendered Alex, refusing to correct. Alex felt harassed and several other staff members who witnessed the exchange reported concern for Alex's well-being. Jane did receive a verbal warning. The organisation or the library did get some gender identity training, but 
Yeah, Jane is still. Yeah, I mean, if you're cornering people and like berating them and creating a toxic work environment, it sounds like they're doing all the right things, right? Like they were given a warning. Somebody came in to talk to them about being more inclusive and not being pieces of shit. I mean, I think the one thing that they probably haven't done is found a person of faith to come in and lead that, right? Like there are lots of faith-based organizations that do trainings like that, that look at it from a religious perspective because oh, you can't- right. Yeah, I mean, if I'm somebody who is of deep faith and you're trying to use like a secular argument with me I don't buy into that already so like how are you gonna what impact is it gonna have on me you're just telling me something that I don't believe in from a perspective I don't believe in but if you have a religious argument and it's met with a religious argument it's harder to challenge that, right? Yeah, really good point. I hadn't really thought about that and the kind of people that you get in to, to speak to. But this is the problem people. when we try to get into debates across faiths or faith and non-faith is one of them doesn't have enough insight into the other to like mm. sufficiently challenge that argument. Occasionally you'll have somebody who's read the Bible, read the Quran, read the whatever. Sure. I mean, obviously there are lots of other faiths. I'm just naming a couple major books off the top of my head. You never are sufficiently equipped to have a, an intellectual discussion about that. Right. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so that's what makes it hard. But mm. if you bring somebody in who is like a faith leader, it's like whenever we're doing our programming and we're trying to do behavior change, what's the first person you start with? You don't just jump into a community that you don't have any business being in. You connect with the local leadership. Mm. You connect with people who are respected by the group of people you're trying to work with or yeah. talk to or understand what would be helpful for them. It's the same approach. You yeah. need to connect with a faith leader who Jane trusts and knows or is familiar with or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 100%. You need somebody who can make the faith-based argument because their argument is faith-based. Yeah, that sounds really a smart thing. You should drop some advice there. I don't care <laughs> enough to <laughs> I have dropped my advice just now. So. Also, how in the context of a public library and something a bit outside of the non-profit sector and how these conversations and debates and complexities play out, you know, because we've often talked about on this podcast, looking at and borrowing from and understanding how other organizations outside the nonprofit sector are facing challenges and so I thought it was an interesting context. The libraries are a battleground right now. Oh interesting. They're this a battleground is... because there's a whole thing about banning books. There's a whole like oh, right. crazy yes. thing that's happening in the states right now around libraries. It's a small tangent. Yeah. So for example there's um, I can't remember the state that it's in or the city or county but it's basically there's this whole thing to ban LGBTQI plus books. And so this library, they're like trying to do a motion or something to get these books banned. Interestingly, they don't even carry any of these books. <laughs> they're not. The wow. books on the list aren't books that they carried anyways. But members of the community have gotten together in a silent protest where they just gather together on conservative liberal whatever they've just gathered together under a tree by the library and are just reading oh what a <laughs> protest that sounds like my kind of protest yeah and they're just like the idea of banning books that's so fucking like it, it, i feel like i've gone out of another years. time yeah 100 yeah. percent. we hopefully have a have a guest about that soon oh cool yeah it's exciting yeah i mean obviously i knew that but yeah <laughs> um i didn't yeah and so it's a real battleground at the moment the libraries and so having conflicting attitudes within that space is not a surprise to me but it's just an interesting space
place to be because that's the well of knowledge, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. So it matters. It matters what kinds of books you have access to in a public library. It matters whether or not our discourse is just leaning in one direction or heavily favors one direction or another. You know what I mean? If all I had in the library was Mein Kampf, for example, then you would believe that that was the center of knowledge. But it's not. Like the point is about embracing diversity and pluralism. So all ideas should be available to people in libraries, with the exception of things like one of those, there's like a handful of books that have been excluded from Amazon because they like celebrate pedophilia and shit like that. That stuff, no. And bomb making, no. What other stuff? Is it the government that decides what books in libraries? Or is it the staff that can petition or ask for certain kinds of books? I think it's the counties that decide so it's not the individuals that work at the library i don't think so did they have any say in it because i'm just curious then about how important is to have libraries to have that also reflect that pluralism if they have an influence on what books are in that i'm not sure that they do because i think it's the counties or the municipal thing because it's not the people they just administer the space they don't make decisions on the space yeah i don't think but But i mean i think there's probably like private libraries or some of that where you maybe have a bit more control but because it's for the public good it's funded by public money i think it's under the fair enough well i mean then staff to some extent will have an influence on it being a transgender safe space or an lgbtq plus safe space yeah and so you know people like jane may make that more difficult yeah if you're aware of that but if you're in a city or a county for example if the janes and the karens of the world keep piping up about stuff like that then perhaps you can reverse that as well yeah fair enough you know Okay, well, we've got some exciting band book conversations to come. (laughs) Yeah, there's one guy in Italy who drives around going to hard-to-reach communities, and he's got a bus that he's converted into a library, so he drops the books off. Oh, lovely. And you can just, like, go, because there's no library for the kids in this this area, but then he's also got this thing where he has some kids in the first town write a story, and then he brings that story to the next town, and those kids there then build on that story, and then it goes to the next place. It's quite cute. That is so cool. I think that might be the next iteration of the van. That is so cool. I love it. Just a bunch of like gay books. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for joining me on my journey through Ask a Manager. I feel like we covered some diverse topics mm-hmm. and a bit of insight into the challenges that people are facing in certain organizations and where they're seeking support. <laughs> Tia will be writing a blog on that shortly. Yeah, I'm here. Don't be afraid to make the work environment toxic. <laughs> if it's for the social good. <laughs> final comment quiet fire Um, (laughs) all right well thank you for listening i'm lauren i'm tia and this has been the journey to transformation Bye. bye thank you for listening to this week's episode of journey to transformation leave us a five star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast journey to transformation is written and edited by us tia rogers and lauren burrows our music comes from praz canal